Do you believe in magic in a young girl's heart? Don't record that. (laughs) (laughs) Too late. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Christopher Denandy. Hey, it's the Vanilla JS guy. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Chris DeMars. Chris, do you want to say hi? Hey, hey, Detroit's in the house. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies, from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash jsjabber. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. When we got on the call, you mentioned you were at the MVP Summit for Microsoft, so you're not actually in Detroit right now. Nope, I'm in Washington right now at the, yep, at the summit. So that's where I'm at. Head back to Detroit in the morning, and then I got to get in my truck and drive down to Cincinnati to speak at another conference. So oh, wow. Fun times. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you like us enough to come and talk to us while you're traveling. Oh, I love it. Cool. Looks like AJ joined us too. AJ, do you want to chime in real quick? Say hello. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the Latosphere of my couch. Nice. Mr. Solder JS. Yeah. <laughs> so, Chris, um, we brought you on to talk about accessibility. I guess before we do that, do you want to give us just a short introduction, who you are, what, what you do, where you work, all that stuff? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, my name is Chris. I live in Detroit. I am a front-end developer for Tuft & Needle. If you don't have a Tuft Needle mattress or pillows or sheets, uh, you should definitely get on that train. And uh, I'm also an international speaker, uh, Google developer expert, and Microsoft MVP. So can you be a Google developer expert and a Microsoft MVP? That sounds like a lot of work. You sure can. When you hustle and do community stuff, it's no big deal. <laughs> I say that now, but it's, 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 it's hard to do. But I've got to hustle, you know. Were you a sales guy in a previous or current life? Uh, no, I used to be a truck driver, and uh, I've worked in tons of non-tech jobs. I started writing code 23 years ago, so I've always done it on the side. And independent contractor, always had non-tech jobs. and Yeah, so I've kind of done a little bit of everything. I'd be curious because I don't think it's, it's been a while since we've had somebody uh, who specializes in accessibility stuff. And I know that's what you speak on a good bit. For anybody out there listening who is kind of interested in that sort of thing, do you think that you were hired in part because of your experience there? Yeah, you know, I've, I've had that conversation with uh, leads and stuff at, at, at Tuft & Needle, and um, I'm pretty sure that was part of the reason as to why, because that's like I'm kind of filling a void that they have in like the accessibility area, and uh, it's definitely a reason I, I, was, I was pulled in and hired that and the experience I have with performance on the front end, those two things specifically are what I think and what I've been told is the reason why I was hired. 
Oh man, it is so great to hear that a company actually cares about either <laughs> of those things because I, I feel like I'm constantly fighting over that stuff. Uh, I know, especially a mattress company. <laughs> I, I well, just think it's funny, right? It's all about conversion, man. No, it's true. Totally true. What I'm driving at is is why is that important to them, you know, over say, I don't know, uh, some Facebook competitor or something? Well, I mean, we you know, our mattresses sell all over the country and we were the first in the industry to kind of like disrupt the whole mattress buying process. So, I mean, everybody's buying our, our products. If they can't use the experience, then they're screwed and then we're screwed. So my, my whole point is the web isn't just for users with disabilities. It's for everybody. And I have to make an accessible user experience at the end of the day. Cause that's my moral duty as a worker on the web. So Dude. hell yes. <laughs> Even my conference talks, like, if you've ever seen me give a talk before, I'm real. I don't beat around the bush and I'll, I'll tell it how it is. And if you don't like that, you can kick rocks. But I'm not here to, you know, just cater to, to the users that need it. It's for everybody. So this is a really kind of timely thing. Chris, um, I'm, sure, I'm sure you know some of the other folks on here may have seen this. But at the time we're recording this, um, WebAIM, an organization that's worked really hard to promote accessibility on the web, did a, um, an analysis of the top million sites on the web and found that just an absurd number of them are doing absolutely terrible with accessibility issues. And ironically, those that include like ARIA attributes and stuff on their site, which are designed to help accessibility, actually performed worse than sites that don't. So I'm really glad you're here because this is a really kind of important thing that it seems like we as a, an industry just really suck at. Um, is that I'm so glad. It's hard? Or is it because they don't care? Or it's not like like the developers don't care as much. It's it's the prioritization, right? It's always an afterthought, and that's just that's just the way it is. And to me, they're the three most important things, you know, not in this order: security, performance, accessibility. Like those are the three main things you need to be concerning yourself with. And truthfully, it all starts at the design phase. Like your designers have to understand web content accessibility guidelines. Your designers have to understand workflow, web flow, user flow, what colors work, because they're the ones at the end of the day that are handing off those mockups to the developers, right? I 100% agree with that. And then also, um, like in some places where you don't necessarily have designers per se, just getting the business to buy in is nearly That's the hardest part. sometimes. So I care a lot about this stuff, but if I'm being candid, it's also an area that I, I struggle with a lot. So like, you know, the web is, is accessible out of the, like just a, a, a document with no style or anything to it is accessible out of the box. And most of the inaccessibility comes from things we do to it. But one of the areas where I really struggle is um, like as a non-disabled person who doesn't use assistive devices to navigate the web, a lot of times when I build things that I think are going to be accessible for people who use screen readers or navigate primarily by keyboard, I find out from consulting with my friends who are experts in that sort of thing that I've actually done a really terrible job and broken a whole bunch of stuff. You know, so like with that in mind, Chris, can you identify any like big wins or low hanging fruit or just kind of like general guidelines, things that people should be like thinking about or aware of when it comes to this issue? In your world, like what are the big things that you see people screw up all the time? Yeah, you know, so I, I do a, um, an accessibility workshop and I, I talk just about, about this specifically. Like it's a, it's a really intro workshop. Uh, I don't like to use the words easy or simple, right? Because what's easy to you might not be easy to somebody else. But I, I do run through like painless 
introductory concepts and wins. And I even like in like regular conference talks, I talk about this because people say, you know, well, how can I start getting my team on board and how can we retrofit stuff in? Because it's always harder to add stuff at the end opposed to doing it from the beginning. But like, like you were saying, the web by default is accessible. Semantic markup. Writing semantic markup is the most introductory thing that you can possibly do because it's accessible by default. As long as you're writing semantic markup and you're structuring things according to the, to the, the way the DOM you know, can read it, it's going to be accessible. Even adding, um, another one is adding alt attributes on your images. That is the most important piece, in my opinion, that makes up an image element, an image tag, is the alt attribute. Because whether or not you have that image there, you're going to get that displayed on the screen, whatever you know the text is, or it'll be read out by screen readers. What's the difference between alt and title? And does that make a difference? Because I think a lot of us do one or the other, but we're not clear on the distinction. Yes. Yeah, so I was reading the other day, uh, I think it was Steve Faulkner, was, he wrote an article about it, about title is only really for like the mouse users. Whereas an alt attribute is for kind of everybody. And I've always, I used to add titles and all attributes a long, long time ago. And then I was told, you don't, you don't need to add the title. The alt attribute is good enough. So moving forward, I just only used all attributes and I just kind of stayed away from the title. If you do both, doesn't it get read out twice for certain screen readers or am I mistaken? I think it does. It's like one, one's going to get read out and the other one's going to get read out. So yeah, I think that could also cause another issue because with your screen reader users, they're not going to want to hear that stuff repeated, especially if you've ever heard somebody that uses a screen reader, like it's a million words a second because they can understand it a lot easier. So are you saying that like they put the dictation really fast? So, yeah, yep. I helped run a, a, uh, a workshop one time and it was for a user group in Detroit and we brought in a technologist who was completely blind he, he worked at MSU and he was showing how blind users navigate the web and he turned his screen reader down. So it was like talking like this, how I'm talking to you. And then he turned it up how he uses it. And it was just like, and we, nobody in the audience could understand it. And he said, the reason that happens is because the, the sense of hearing is heightened because they can't see anything that they can process the words a lot faster than the normal person can. That wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be blind or partially blind. Oh it's, it's really fascinating to actually see somebody use a screen reader that's completely blind. It's, it's really, really cool. Well, when you think about it, when you take a photo or a video, compare that to an audio clip. Like we represent it in digital bits, but the brain has to take all of that information and process it. So if your processing center for vision is free and available, you can bet some of your other senses are going to take on some of that bandwidth because it's a lot. Yeah, no doubt for sure. Yeah. One other thing that's interesting there is uh, I, I was at a talk and I'll have to find it because I don't remember exactly what it was, but they actually did some kind of like CSS override on whatever website they were on and turned it all white. Right. And so the whole audience is looking at a web browser with a white web page loaded into it. And then he's like, and this is how blind people experience the web. And then, yeah, he turned on the, the screen reader and it, it was really interesting because yeah, it was just, oh, you know, cool went really freaking fast yeah um, well you know it's it's funny too uh when i talk about manual testing and i talk about using a screen reader and when i ask my audience you know how do you use a screen reader like oh you just turn the screen reader on i'm like yeah but how do you do it and like oh well, you just listen to it and, and look at the screen i'm like no, no 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 
You don't look at the screen when the screen reader's going. Cover up your monitor, turn it off, or do something. Like, that's how you manually test. Nobody out there is, is running a screen reader. And I can see it. Yep, there's an H1, and it says this, and I can hear it. It doesn't work that way. So can we talk about that for a little bit? Because I know when I talk about accessibility with folks, um, and again, I'm still very much a novice at this stuff, but a lot of folks kind of ask me for things like tools to automate this sort of thing. And from what I understand, there are some tools that do that, but you still want to do manual testing. So can we unpack that a little bit, why that's so important? Yeah, for sure. So one, one tool that I advocate for completely, and I, I, I talk about it all the time, is, is AxCorp. And AxCorp is made by DQ. DQ is an accessibility company. Actually, where I'm from, about 45 minutes west of Detroit and Ann Arbor. And they built a tool called XCore. And you can run XCore in um, the browser. As far as like Chrome extension, there's a Chrome extension, there's a Firefox extension. Uh, you can run it in the terminal if you like playing around the terminal. And you can also run it in like testing frameworks like Mocha, Jasmine. And XCore will run an accessibility audits according to the standard on your experience on a page-by-page basis. And it'll give you like all the stuff that's wrong, how to fix it. So you can do that, but it only catches, I, I believe it's 20 to 50% of all accessibility errors because to, in order to get everything else, you have to manually test. You know, you have to use a screen reader. You have to remove the keyboard or remove the mouse, sorry, and just use the keyboard and check the tab index, check the focus, check all these different things. But the only way you can do that is manual because you can't automate that. And if you're familiar with Lighthouse in the DevTools, you can run an accessibility audit It'll give you a score out of 100. The close, in my opinion, the closer to 100 and the more that you're in the green, the better. Uh, but that will also tell you, you know, your past audits, um, stuff that didn't really have to be checked, and then manual audits. And the manual audits are the ones you have to do physically. So I guess the other question I have is, is you know, whether you're using a tool like Axe or AxeCore or whether you're, you know, you put up a screen reader and turn off your monitor, how do you know you have a problem because, you know, has been brought up with screen reader. It reads things off pretty quickly and I don't know if it's right. You know, it, it sounds like it listed everything that's supposed to be on the page. So how do I know if I have a problem or not? Usually you'll be able to tell if you visually know what you're looking at. Um, and like, say you built it or you have like a design mock-up next to you and you're going through a screen reader. If the screen reader isn't reading what you know is supposed to be there, you know, you have a problem. And a lot of the times you see this with social media icons. Social media icons, you're usually going to pull them from like Font Awesome and they're going to be in like a span or an I tag or an, an M, whatever the case may be. And, and Bootstrap does this really well. If you, you add an ARIA label of close or like an ARIA label of exit, uh, that's if we're talking about like in modals, but you would add an ARIA label of Twitter or ARIA label of YouTube or Instagram. That way when the screen reader the focus enters that and it announces it to your user, it'll say, you know, icon, Twitter, link. And uh, you know that you can interact with that at, at some point. Whereas if you don't have an ARIA label on that, it'll just say link, that's it, or icon. And that means oh, nothing to your user. Is there an argument to be made here that icons are terrible and we should be using SVGs or something instead anyways? Yeah, you could, you could definitely go that route because I think, I think Fun Awesome has like the SVG version, which you might have to pay for Font Awesome to get the SVG version. Uh, but for companies that, you know, don't have that type of resource, you know, they, they default down to the, to the icon fonts. And it's just at that point, you just have to make those accessible. 
right? So you put an ARIA label on there that says that it's a link to Facebook. Yeah. Yep. And then the same, th- same thing with modals. Like you have an X in the corner. That's usually a span that's either like the letter X or, you know, ampersand times semicolon, or it could be a font, right? Yeah, font also has you, an X in there too for close. Right. And if you don't put an ARIA label on that of exit or close, when the user, you know, moves or focus to that, they're not going to know what that is. And they can just keep focusing and tapping around that whole entire modal and kind of be stuck, kind of be trapped in that experience and not be able to shift focus back to the main window. But if the screen reader announces close or exit, then they, they know at that point, okay, I can interact with this element, shift focus back to the window. Now, what about um, like developer education and teaching developers what to do and how to do it and how to do it properly? Because I think potentially some of the reason why people are, are at least certainly a contributing factor on why sites tend to be less accessible is that there's a lot of developers just aren't 100% sure what they should be doing. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there's so many resources out there. For instance, DQ has the, like, a, like, like a university. It's called DQ University. And I, I don't remember if it's free or not, or there's a small fee. But there's tons of information on there on you know, different accessibility points, um, how to do certain things with, with ARIA, the importance of focus, color contrast. There's, there's tons and tons of resources out there. I mean, there's also companies out there that you, know, you can hire to have them consult. DQ is one of them. Um, even people that will come in and do training around certain things, give workshops. But it really does boil down to education, right? We're not, we don't get into this industry just learning accessibility right off the rip. When I started a long, long time ago, accessibility wasn't a big deal. There wasn't a huge thing, you know, based around accessibility. But now, you know, it's, it's surfacing more and, and the, the accessibility world is starting to grow a lot more. And it's, it's good to see that, you know what I mean? Right, right. Now, another thing that I was like thinking of when you were talking about prioritization, right? And you were saying performance, security, and accessibility are, are like things that should be high on the priority list, but oftentimes do not make it high on the priority list. I was kind of thinking of a parallel between this and unit testing or automated testing, right? I have a lot of experience in this aspect of things and talk a lot of times with people who are like, I want to do it, but my company just doesn't want to spend the time or... I'm familiar with what it's like when you say, all right, we're going to unit test our code. We're absolutely going to do a great job at it. And then the very first time a deadline comes around, that's like one of the first things gets thrown out the window. Well, we're not going to write unit tests this week because we just can't afford to we, and, and still get the features out that we need to get out for the sprint, right? But oftentimes I you know, recommend people, like especially with consultants, consultants are like, how can I get a client to buy off on paying for unit tests, right? They don't want to pay for them. And I always, when I talk to people like that, I tell them, well, you don't tell your client that you're going to unit test. You just say that this is going to take this long. And you know that part of that is writing the automated tests for it. And the same thing with dealing with a boss. When I tell people to add unit tests, they're like, well, my boss won't let me, you know, spend extra time on something. I tell them, you don't tell them you're going to spend the time writing the tests. You just say, and when I get this thing task done, this is how long it's going to take. You don't break it down between this activity and this activity. So do you think that's a viable tactic to use when dealing with accessibility is to stop surfacing the cost of the accessibility and just start doing it? Yeah, you know, I never thought about it, but that, I mean, that you bring up a great point, especially when you have leadership that, that aren't developers. 
or you have stakeholders that are developers and they don't understand quite what goes into the experience, right? They're just saying, get this done by this date. So yeah, I mean, breaking it down, if you, if you don't have to break down what you're doing, I say go for it. You're not costing any more money than you already are by sitting there writing the code. And I hear that a lot. Oh, it's gonna, it costs more money to do that. Like, no, it doesn't. You're already writing the code. Just do it from the rip and everything will be fine. But if you do have like a team lead who is a developer and you know most team leads that I know, they don't write code anymore, uh, but they do understand the importance of it. In my opinion, in my experience, nine times out of 10, they'll have your back when it comes to you know breaking it down to the stakeholders and shipping uh, a product that's accessible. Because they'll say, you know, no, we're not going to do this. This needs to be done first. Well, the other thing is, is with the way that a lot of people are building their front end these days, you know, where they're using something like React or Vue or Angular, it's all component-based anyway. And so to the extent that you're reusing components, if you build that into your component, then it will be accessible anyway. And so, you know, the, the repetition and going through every element on your site becomes a whole lot simpler because then you just need to audit the components that you're pulling together. I would say that sounds like a great thing, but in practice, it probably doesn't end up being like, I'm just thinking no, I'm like, you're sure not hundred percent, but alt tags for images, for example. I mean, that's probably a crazy complex because if you're the only developer on some site, right, then yeah, you're the one that's adding the alt tags to images, but it's very possible that in a bigger system, like, yeah, I want there to be an alt tag in, these, in this, but I'm not the, this is a developer, I'm not the one who even decides what the alt tag is. There has to be like an authoring team that goes through and figures out what the alt text should be for given images that are on there and what images you want even to be covered and what's, what ones you want to be skipped. And there's like a lot of decision-making that goes into some of the complexities of dealing with this sort of stuff, right? Especially on big, large teams. Yeah, yeah, and that brings would, up a good I point too. More along the lines of the, say, the social links and things like that, where you're going to reuse it around your website, so you just make it right the first time, and then it's right everywhere. Yeah. So speaking of like content author stuff like that, and and peop and the people trying to come up with what the alt attributes are supposed to be, or like what the captions are supposed to be, anybody that has their hand in this experience has to give a shit about accessibility. I don't care who you are. And I make that a, a point from designer to stakeholder. If you have your hand in this experience in some shape or fashion, it is your obligation, your moral duty to give a shit about accessibility because this stuff matters, whether you like it or not. You've said several times now, this is a moral obligation. And I don't believe in that. Like, I don't believe in moral obligations. Uh -oh. It's, it's people. Uh, I'm with AJ on this one. It's people's fairy tales. in the heads, right? you guys. So you two so, disappoint me. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Well, when he's done explaining, I will let's finish. Let's, if I need to. Let's, still, let's hear the finish of this. So for me, like, I don't want to hear like, oh, you should do this because I decided it's a moral good that everyone needs to believe the same I believe, which I, I'm not saying that that's how you're necessarily coming across, but that is how this often comes across. What I want to hear is, what are the benefits? Like, cause, cause if you think about goodwill, like karma, the reason that if you just want to be completely selfish, the reason that you're good to other people is because other people are going to be good to you, right? If you, if you want to go complete selfishness, no morality whatsoever, it benefits you to be a good, kind and caring person. 
So, so AJ, is everything really that black and white though? Like you're cool with certain businesses just not having ramps so people with wheelchairs can't get them. Like that wouldn't, that it, wouldn't it, offend It's not you. about, it's not, it's not about what I'm cool with. Cause there's that, that's where the morality comes in. If I impose what I'm cool with on someone else, but that's not what I'm trying to get into. What I'm trying to say is I believe, I believe that there's some real benefit to the people that are involved in that process beyond some moral obligation. I believe that there's some real value that is measurable that they're going to, to get out of trying to follow this process. I believe that. And what I'd like to hear is if you could, if you could justify that in, in a more concrete way as to why it is good for these people to pay attention to accessibility for their own benefit and what they're going to reap out of it. I think with testing, we could say you should test all day long. Who cares whether or not you should test? What's great about testing is that you can develop certain types of code much faster and you can deliver a better quality product to your client that satisfies them. So forget about the moral good. Like it's, it has a great benefit. And I believe that about this accessibility stuff. So I want to see if you can turn that a little bit and appease my, my sense of, uh, of, of why should people do this other than moral good. To me, and I mean, my, in my opinion, we're, we build on the web for a reason. Like, why do you build on the web? Because you like to make cool shit? Or so all the users can have an amazing, enjoyable experience. That's why I do it. And that's why I feel morally, it's my job to make these ex- amazing user experiences. If my mom couldn't use the experience, I didn't do my job. Because my mom suffers from a whole lot of disabilities. So at that point, I'm just going to hang my hat up because there's no point in working on the web for me. And I feel that should, I mean, that doesn't have to be for everybody. But I mean, the bottom line at the end of the day is, yeah, your company wants to make money. But if your experience isn't accessible and you can show them that, hey, listen, our bounce rates are off the charts. We are not, we're losing money because our clientele, so part of our clientele cannot use our experience right there. You can, there, there's the benefit right there. Yeah, and I think I think that's the the real thing for me is, you know, uh, citing it as a moral good is is really hard because for me, right and wrong mean different things to different people, and so saying that it's a moral imperative to put it into the website, I have a hard time getting there. I understand where you're coming from as far as yeah, you know, we want everybody to be able to use the entire internet, and you know, I'm not going to argue that that's not a good thing, but. You know, for some people, the the primary directive is to add value to the business that they're working for. And so if it's not affecting their bottom line, then, you know, do they have a moral imperative to make it accessible? That depends on what their morality tells them. You know, and I'm not a complete moral relativist, but in a lot of ways, you know, I'm not going to judge somebody else because they're not making it accessible because they don't think it's important. Blind blind people can't use our site, but we drove shareholder value, so. And if that's what your priority is, then fine, you know, and those people will go somewhere else and spend their money there. But, you know, I think that's a conversation that every company has to have or every website has to have. For what it's worth, I have found the the moral argument very um, unconvincing for a lot of folks. I agree with it, but I don't... um, No, I I understand it. I, I just, I don't completely buy into it. But that said, I mean, the other aspect of this, and you know, I'm sure you all have things to say about it, is that if I'm building a site from scratch, why not put it in, right? I'm adding a couple extra tags to stuff. 
It just kind of becomes, you know, second nature to me to build it in. So, you know, why not? But if I inherit a huge project that isn't accessible, then it's going to be quite a bit of work to add it in. And so I can add it in as I work on it. But if it's a moral imperative, and this is the other part that kind of makes me um, argue a little bit on that, is that if I'm morally required to put it in, then do I stop every, you know, all forward progress as far as producing new features in order to add accessibility in? Uh, It just, it doesn't make sense to me that way either. Uh, You said a couple of things I think I'd like to offer a counterpoint to. One of them you said is, hey, if I'm building a brand new site, why not just build it in? But from little bit I know about accessibility is that can actually backfire on you very much because you can put in what seems to be accessibility and actually hurt the accessibility of your site and drive it down, right? Too many ARIA tags are the wrong ARIA tags in the wrong places using, say, default stuff. If you don't know what you're doing, you can actually hurt the accessibility on your site and, and, and drive it lower than what it would be if you didn't spend any time or effort. So one, being educated about what you're doing. Uh, Chris, I'd like you to chip in here and tell me if I'm doing, saying anything. No, uh, but that's, the WebAIM study found that you know, specifically that sites that used ARIA tags clearly well-intentioned wanting to do the right thing actually had lower accessibility scores than sites that didn't. Right. So like just the default stuff that your framework may may do may be a problem. I think it's another interesting thing to say, all right, you could make a moral argument and say, hey, we're bad people if we don't care about this, right? And then you could make a economic argument. We have customers and we want to sell our money to those customers. But is there any other aspect to this? Because one thing on the customer side uh, that I think you talked about before, which was, well, here's people and we want to you know, sell them our stuff. You can actually potentially generate numbers that said, hey, it's just not worth it to us to sell to that segment of people, right? Like they're not going to buy enough in relationship to what it costs to add it to this. So if you t- take it to a purely economic standpoint, that might not get you where you need to go. And purely ethical can be also be difficult for a company to swallow because your boss can say, I agree with you. I absolutely want this to be this way, but I'm going to lose my job and you're going to lose your job and we're all going to lose our job if we don't put out a product that makes money and we get it done today and the limited resources that we have, right? So is there any other aspects that could be used in relationship to something like this to help development teams that are out there that are in this place where I think a lot of developers are, which is, I don't know very much about it. I do feel like it's important, but I don't want to be the guy on the team who's either viewed as being a nut job or I don't want to be the guy who's like everybody's everybody's saying you're being too slow because you're spending all this time doing this and that and this and that. I was in that position in my last company. How did that how did that. that turn out for you? How did you get through that and how did you I mean you you've almost turned it around on its head, right? Yeah, no, I I did actually. Real well. They, um, the company I worked for, nothing was accessible. And I put my foot down. I didn't beat around the bush. I said, listen, you have to do this. You have to. Because the, the main client base that we have was of an aging population. And we were in heavy, heavy competition with other companies who were doing things the right way. And I just told them, I said, listen, you, you want to maintain clients? You want to maintain these people? The one thing that our CEO would hate is that our user could not use our experience because it was not accessible. 
and I put out reports. I did accessibility audits. I did comparisons with our, our uh, competition. I, I, I nailed it down like A, B, and C. This is what we need to do. We don't have to do it all today, all in a week, but we need to start caring about these things. And I started working on other projects and I was in charge of all the accessibility. And the couple projects we did ship were the first completely accessible applications that we shipped in entire company history of 30 years. And that was a huge, huge win for me a huge one for the company and a huge one for accessibility in general. So you made an, an economic argument. Yep. I made an economic argument. I, I made a, an obligation and I, you know, a moral thing about it too. Like, listen, we have users that need to use this experience and you want them to use the experience. If they don't, they're going to go elsewhere and you don't want to lose money. You don't want to lose clients. We don't want to lose people. We want to be known for our technology and the experience that we're shipping. This needs to be done. So and people started listening, and we made it happen. There's something else that you're talking about there, because before, well, I mean, you've you've said this, you've said this, you said you don't want to just make it accessible for the the people that have accessibility issues per se. You want to make it accessible for everyone. I'm a huge, huge believer in that. When you start making things accessible for just regular people, just the average Joe, it's also going to be more accessible for the person who's blind and vice versa. Exactly. You're talking about you've got a demographic where they have a really common problem. They're aging. Their ability to differentiate between color is becoming more difficult. Their ability to differentiate between light and dark is becoming more difficult. This is the problem that every human that reaches mature age goes through. And I personally, I have such a hard time with modern web design because it it's so hard to read. And sometimes people use like super thin fonts and da, 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 da. And I, I feel like I'm an average Joe, but I really struggle with being able to parse structure on modern websites because it, it just seems like so much noise to me, like the signal, to noise ratio, there's, there's like almost no, it's not that there's so much noise as much as there's like almost no signal, I guess is the way that I'd I'd said everything's so light, everything's so low contrast. And you make that site better for those people that are, you know, having these, uh, the, the aging population. You'd actually make that site infinitely better for me as well. And then likewise, if you just had considered someone like me, you would have made it infinitely better for them. It's a win, 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 win. Exactly. And I, I completely agree with that. And I, and then another point I, I talk about a lot is, you know, in the 90s, when, you know, we, I was starting to build web pages, black backgrounds with small lime green or small purple text or yellow, like that was cool. I thought that was amazing. That, that was so sweet. Everything was centered. That was back in the day of table-based layouts and frames. But that, that, that looked cool to me. Like the original sticky header was a frame without a border. Like that's the original sticky header. I still miss the blink tag. Oh, blink tags. Um, so it's funny, actually, on a side note, marquee, even though mar the marquee tag was deprecated, it still works. Just going to throw that out there. Uh, but like you design stuff and you build stuff that you thought was cool, right? And, and that you find that still today, like with, especially with marketing and design teams, they think something is sweet. So they want to build it, but they're not thinking about the bigger picture. And I talk about this so much. It's like, yeah, we can build stuff all day long that we think is dope, but we don't matter. 
we do and we don't. Like the users are the ones that matter. They're the ones that are using the experience. I can go into a backend and purchase a mattress all day long through a terminal, right? I don't need a UI for that. But our users are the ones that are going to be doing this, right? You know, children that are buying, you know, their parents are buying a twin mattress or an elderly couple that want to buy a new mattress for their summer home or their winter home, or whatever the case may be. Like those are the users. We can't build things that we think just looks cool. We have to really look outside at the bigger picture. Amen. Amen. So what do you think of the Captain Marvel website? <laughs> I love it. I love Cause it brings me back, man. It brings me back to 1996. I love it. Uh, I have another question for you. Is the 80, 20 rule apply when it comes to accessibility? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not real sure. I'd have to actually Google that. Yeah. I'm not, I don't know. Like, I don't know. It just seems to me like you could take a little bit of effort and get so much benefit out of it without having to take things all the way. Right. Yeah, no, and that's for sure. And especially when you start getting into rough water with lawsuits. In 2017, there was 814 federal website lawsuits across nine states in Puerto Rico. 814 federal website lawsuits based around accessibility. They're and coming now, after private companies more now too, right? Like they went after the Queen Beyonce last year. Yeah, Beyonce got hit. Um, Bank of America, Red Roof Inn, Win dixie Dick Blick art materials, they got hit. And I mean, a lot of that could be attributed to, you know, headhunter attorneys that are just doing it just to find something small to, to sue somebody about. But 814, like that is a mind blowing number. That's two and a half lawsuits a day for 365 days. And the biggest number came out of New York and Florida. And there's reasons behind that. But well, it, it just blows my mind. It's actually kind of interesting, right? Like, so if we take this a step back, we look at the web and we think, I mean, I run a company, I have a website, right? My accessibility is not something that uh, I should be bragging about on that website, right? It's not terrible, but it's also not something that I would hold up as a, as a gold standard. But if we look at the parallel between brick and mortar, right? It is against the law to not provide accessibility if you're a brick and mortar store in the US, right? There are laws associated with that. And we only got to that place today because at some point in the past, the legal system became a thing. You know, the government passed some laws and then people started suing people. And all of a sudden, it became an actual economic issue, right? And the minute it became like not a debatable economic issue of, well, we have some customers out there we're missing out on their money. And like, well, are we talking about an extra one-tenth of 1% in income or an extra 10% and we don't, we can't answer that question. If it was 10%, we'd spend the money. If it was one-tenth of 1%, we wouldn't spend the money. But now if you're looking at laws and lawsuits, all of a sudden things become radically different. And brick and mortar stores, they can make the same argument I can make about websites, which is, hey, we got to survive and we got to make money before we can worry about this extra thing. But when the laws state come in and say, you must have this, otherwise you can't even operate then that becomes the baseline for how to operate and whether or not you make money is you actually have to have these things. Is that a place where we should be? Should we, there should be legislation that says if you're running a website and you know, at least within the jurisdiction of, of us that you must have these features, they must meet this certain criteria. And if you don't, then you're found a violation and you know, lawsuits become not, I mean, 800 sounds like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, it's probably a, you know, compared to the number of websites that exist, it's nothing. Yeah. I mean, it, it could be a thing. I know that 
I, I was talking about this with somebody, a developer in Canada, and they don't have laws around accessibility. They don't have to put in any accessibility from what I was told. And nothing, nothing will happen to them. Uh, but I also heard that I think in Europe or the UK, it is against the law completely to not have, not to be shipping an accessible website, completely accessible. I don't know like where that would range on like an audit scale or an audit score or anything like that. But I, you might see that more and more as, as time goes on and accessibility starts getting surfaced more and more that there might be legislation at some point that says if you are not compliant, you know, according to this standard, you cannot ship or you cannot sell products, whatever the case may be. But I just being in the industry for a little bit and hearing from other, you know, accessibility consultants and, and people working on things that if somebody, if you do get sued, nine times out of 10, from what I've been told, you'll have a timeline to like a year or, or two years to ship out that experience or fix it. But um, as far as, you know, having legislation in place to say it's either yay or nay, maybe it might happen. Who knows? Well, it doesn't some of the responsibility also need to fall on a, the people that have to deal with the problems that they have, regardless of how they got them and B the people that are, you know, creating the screen readers and that kind of stuff. I mean, cause I could see where trying to support some use cases and these are going to be in the, you know, 0.1% or whatever, but it's just going to be really hard and degrade potentially, potentially degrade experience for other people or something to try to like shoehorn something in this way or that way. So, I mean, it, it seems like we can't, we can't say, well, everybody in the world needs to cater to me in the way that I want the world to be. We also have to figure out, well, how, how can we enable people to, to help themselves and the tools that are to help them to, to get better as well. And I, AJ, do you really believe this or are you playing devil's advocate right now? Oh, I absolutely believe that, uh, you know, you are responsible for yourself and you've, you, you can't, you can, like, if you want to survive, you have to figure out how to make life work for you 100%. Like, it is a super hard, unfortunate thing. You know, it's, you, you got you to gotta look out for yourself. I'm sure this is not what you mean, but what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is, like, so if, if I as a developer do something that breaks the way the technology, the assistive technology I use to access this stuff works, I as the disabled person need to figure out a way to work around that. I'm sure that's not what you mean, but that's, that's what I'm hearing. So take this with the right amount of gravity, but yeah, I, I actually am saying that. Like, for example, that person might need to say, hey, I need to get on the phone and speak to customer support. And like, maybe I'm going to have to use my social skills instead of my hide behind the computer skills, which most people have more of a luxury of doing, but that's going to help me solve my problem. If that person's not even giving a phone number or whatever, then like, it's really definitely on the side of the company, but the solution may be, hey, if you've got this disability, you've got to pick up the phone or, you know, you've got to do something proactive on your own end. Now, I'm not saying, you know, throw it all away because if you remember what I was saying just a couple of minutes ago, I'm saying I think there's a lot of benefit in this stuff. I think it's good. I think as you are kind and you look out for other people that you get the same in return, it's, you know, that karma thing is is real. So I'm not saying that uh, there's not a responsibility on developer. I'm just trying to counterbalance that at this point with, what is it that, you know, either the assistive technology companies need to be doing or the people that are having these problems, you know, their minimum viable option that we need to make sure we support, you know, because maybe the phone number is that 80-20 or something. 
Yeah, one thing that I just want to add to this too is it's one thing to say that you know the onus is on the developer to make it accessible, and I, I think that's a fair assessment. But I really hesitate also to put any kind of restriction on people being on you know doing development for the internet. I mean, one of the things that's really nice about the internet is that you can build a business and move quickly. So putting this uh, burden on people to actually understand accessibility and do it right, you know, it adds another layer to somebody trying to come in and actually do something on the internet. I'm just saying there are trade-offs to, to both arguments, right? No, I actually agree with you though, Chuck. And the, for, like for me, the thing that, that really trips me up about this, right? So where I constantly, and I have this argument with my like accessibility specialist friends a lot because they, um, to them, because they're so deeply immersed in this, like this stuff is no more difficult than like, you know, JavaScript or learning like the nuances of CSS. But like, in my mind, I look at two components that to me feel like two different visual manifestations of the same thing. So let's say like accordions and toggle tabs. Both of those at the end of the day are little interactive widgets that are going to show or hide content based on what the user does. But the markup structure, and in particular, the ARIA attributes and the roles associated with those things and the keyboard navigation around those and the way focus handling is, is done is completely different between the two of those. And if you screw it up, blind users who are trying to navigate and use screen readers or people who navigate by keyboard are getting really frustrated and confused. And it's like those little nuances. Like so from, what I've, from what I've uncovered, there's some really like low-hanging general fruit but then when we start adding a lot of this JavaScript-y component stuff, there's so much like context-based nuance to how you do it right that makes it really, really hard to do without screwing up. And you can go in with the best of intentions and just completely break it. So like, I'm going to give a quick shout out to my friend, Eric Bailey. He wrote this really in-depth article about the WebAIM survey that I was talking about earlier. And AJ, this, this might actually appeal to you. One of the things he talked about was how... Um, it seems like both browsers and possibly like assistive technology potentially have a responsibility to, or maybe not like assistive technology, but there needs to be some sort of like, potentially some sort of thing that automates some of this for developers because it is, it is really hard and it would be great if browsers and assistive tech were better at inferring intent than they currently are today because there's just so many little ways you can screw it up. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's... <sighs> I think one other thing that's really hard for me is just that, you know, and this goes back to talking about, you know, is it, is it a moral argument or not, is that a lot of things in my life I take responsibility for because, you know, that's just the way I am. So like my kids, what my kids are doing, you know, a lot of those other things I take responsibility for. And to a certain degree, it was my decision, right? It was my decision, my wife's decision to have kids. It, you know, it was my decision to move to this neighborhood, it was my decision, you know, to do a lot of these things. And so the, the things that come out of that are my responsibility. But, you know, when it comes down to compensating because somebody else has a disability, that's really hard for me to put the onus on any one person because nobody decided to give them the disability. And so it's hard to say that any one person has any responsibility for that and make it a requirement for them to handle it. Now, I, I think a lot of people are going to be sympathetic to it and want to take care of it. And some people are not going to be in a position to really figure it out. And so, yeah, you know, bringing this argument full circle, it, I, I don't know. I, I, I really have a hard time saying that it's any one person's 
responsibility for it. But I do agree with AJ to a certain degree, and that is is that if somebody wants a specific outcome, their responsibility they're responsible for taking the action to get it. And you know, to the extent that we can all make it easier for them is a it's a good thing for us to do. But I I really have a hard time making it a requirement or you know stating that that person is is doing something wrong by not doing it. See, the the thing that I really don't want is one more bar showing up in every single browser page that's like to turn on accessibility features, accept or cancel now. <laughs> then I wouldn't be able to use any web page at all whatsoever. <laughs> or like, you know, some sort of legal notice, like this, this does not comply with accessibility features. Continue using? Uh, See, I actually think that would be a good thing. Um, I'm thinking about the way now you get like, you get warnings when like on an SSL or an encrypted site, like things are served unencrypted. Like, if I'm being honest, I agree with Chris. I think this is a moral issue. Um, and I, I know some of you on, on this episode don't agree with me here. But, like, we need to, in one fashion or another, get people to give more of a shit about this. And if that means we're going to start breaking sites if they don't meet a minimum bar of accessibility, I am 100% okay with that. I would say if we make it easier for people to do the right thing than to do the wrong thing, people will pick convenience. So if there's some way that both. we make it easier for people to do, if we, if we say it's actually easier to build a site with this framework that already supports accessibility than with React, you know, or whatever, I'm just throwing crap out there because that's the big buzzword right now, right? Like you'd get more of it by default maybe, or maybe not because of all that uh, inference and the, you know, overuse of ARIA tags, making things intolerable and that sort of stuff. Yeah. It, I, it really boils I, down to the education. I mean, as developers too, we also have a fair amount of autonomy when we're doing this kind of thing. Like I know developers who testing is not a thing where they work, but they take it upon themselves to write tests because they feel like they write better code that way. So if you want to make things accessible, like I think that's kind of what Chuck was saying, you can go ahead and do it. Yeah, and I just, I, I'm just going to jump in here with one uh, last thing, and that is, is that I really appreciate more than anything else on this episode that we have a stark disagreement on what should be done or what should be required to be done. I mean, to the point where we're actually using the word moral, which to me says right or wrong. And so if you're not doing it, you're wrong, right? And so we can have the conversation about it and we can, you know, be civil about it and come to understand each other a little bit better. And, and I really appreciate that. And ultimately, I, what I hope is, is that A, you know, people are a little bit more aware of the issues here B, that maybe we forced a few people to think about where they come down on this and C, you know, maybe Chris can give us a few more resources where people can go to get started with accessibility. And then I think we need to head to picks because I know a few people have some uh, timeline issues. Chris, do you have some favorite resources for people to go and learn a little bit more about accessibility? Oh, yeah, definitely. Let's see. So there, uh, Rob Dotson, he does a video series on the Chrome developer YouTube channel called Alleycasts. That's a really, really good one. They're like little snippets. I don't think there's anything longer than 30 minutes. And he kind of goes through some different, you know, little aspects of accessibility, how to build in certain things. Uh, one of his videos was actually an inspiration for a, a talk I give on focus styles and accessibility. So there's that. Anything Marcy Sutton does, all her videos on YouTube, her blog posts, her articles, uh, those are really, really great resources. Uh, let's see what else. DQ University. Um, even even just going through the web content accessibility guidelines and and reading through those, you don't have to read through everything. 
but just reading through those and kind of getting an understanding of why the web has these things in play and why these things are useful. I mean, that's, that's great, great, great information. I really appreciate all the conversation and all the viewpoints that have been expressed here. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Let's go ahead and do some picks. Amy, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I was just looking through some. Um, so this one looks pretty interesting. I will say that it's not JavaScript. It is in Python. But anybody who kind of knows me fairly well knows I love to kind of go at a lower level on things and understand under the hood how things are working. So this is a tutorial on um, implementing some of the features that Git has, but in Python. So that looked super interesting to me. Um, I'm trying to think if I have any fun picks today. I'm just going to go with that one. <laughs> I have some music ones that I need to comb through, but because I went first, I didn't have a chance to do that. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> All right. Chris, Bert, and Andy, do you want to give us some picks? I do. Um, so I mentioned that WebAIM survey a couple of times. Um, I'm going to recommend two articles around that. The first is from my friend, Eric Bailey. He wrote this really detailed kind of summary of the findings and a whole bunch of his thoughts around it. It's a little bit doom and gloom because as someone who's been working in the industry and, and kind of fighting for better accessibility for a while, I think it was really heartbreaking for him to see how bad some of the more popular sites are doing, but it's still a really good read with some kind of solutions and thoughts at the end. Second, similarly related, um, Ethan Marcotte wrote a really great article called The Web We Broke, where he also talks about the survey, um, but then kind of ends it with a more, um, maybe a slightly more uplifting tone um, with some thoughts on how we can start to do better. And then on a non-tech front, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, Allbirds, the sneaker company. They're based in New Zealand. They make shoes out of natural fibers like wool and eucalyptus. I absolutely hate wearing socks and um, because they line the insides of their shoes with like a um, like merino wool, like moisture wicking, bacteria resistant kind of material. You can go sockless in them and uh, they will start to stink after about six months, but it's not that immediate kind of stink like you get from uh, like going sockless in athletic shoes or something. And then you can just machine wash them and the smell goes away, which is pretty cool. Um, so I've been really, really happy with those on a couple of different pairs and uh, highly recommend them. Nice. AJ, what are your picks? All right. So on the topic of moral arguments, in the Golang community, there are different ways to do synchronization. And what's that other word that's the opposite that I'm thinking of? Asynchronous. No, 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 no. Uh, co, co, co something or other. There's parallel and then there is, ah, 
I'm blanking on it. Anyway, so there's there's different ways to do tasks at the same time, either that are related or unrelated. And Golang has the concept of a channel, which is kind of like for task queues, a mutex, which is uh, like threaded style mutexes, and then weight groups. And some people kind of cling to like, oh, channels are new and shiny and it's the go way, so we must do it. But actually on the Golang wiki, they have an article called Golang Mutex versus Channel or something like that that I'm linking to here. And I love the way that they uh, express how you know when you should use which. Pick one, start writing some code in it. If it feels wrong or looks complicated, pick one of the other ones instead. (laughs) Such a beautiful and simple way of, I mean, they do have kind of like a litmus test of if you're doing this type of thing, this is probably better, this kind of better. But so such a nice, clear, empirical way of, you know, you're using the wrong tool for the job if it makes the job more complicated. So I just thought that was really cool. I'm also going to pick Nobuo Uematsu. I don't know if I said that right. Nobuo Uematsu. Anyway, this is the guy that does pretty much any video game music that you love from the Nintendo or PlayStation early era of games. He wrote all of it. And I just recently bought one of his non-video game albums. I haven't been able to listen to it yet because it's kind of a rare thing. You don't just pull up on YouTube and find the full album. But uh, I listened to a track. It's the, the album is called Phantasmagoria, which is just an excellent name. And so I'm very interested to receive it. But if you like classical music that's got thematic elements to it, this guy's stuff is just beautiful. It's iconic of our generation, if you're my age-ish. And then also, I'm going to do a little self-promotion as well. I started doing some videos on electronics. So now my YouTube channel that up until this point has been all more software and IT, now it's got some electronic stuff on it too. And one of the videos that I don't think is terrible because it's it's really a different style from doing screencasts to doing these like live action working with things under Zoom is... But one that I don't think is terrible so far is how to tin enameled wire. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link that in there. And if you've got that problem, boy, I got your back. I don't mean to be a genderist or anything. You know, girl, I got your back. Like, whoever you are, I got your back, okay? Do you have any videos on, like, epoxies and glues? Oh, I, not published yet, but I do have one where... I, next time, Chris, next time. The, the, people, the people demand this content, AJ. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Oh dear. Joe, do you have some picks for us? Oh wow, I'm like just so mind boggled by what just happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so let's see. <laughs> <laughs> I think I will pick something fun. So uh, I'm a big board game player and I recently played a game called Gizmos and that was a really fun board game. So if you're looking for something that's Fun. It's got a fair amount of strategy, a fair amount of fun to it. Check it out. The board game Gizmos. And something a little bit topical about accessibility. When I took over Thinkster IO, the very first course that we commissioned to have built was a course on web accessibility by Aaron Coughlin over at Google. So I'm not sure exactly when that's going to release. It'll be definitely after this episode gets published. But 
if you're listening to this episode, maybe a month after it gets published, then that course should be live on thinkster.io. And those are my picks. Nice. So uh, you said you played a <coughs> gizmo, and I have socks on that have gizmo from Gremlins on them. <laughs> so I guess I'll uh, give a shout out for that one. Uh, Loot Crate. You bridged both me and Chris with the socks, the footwear, yeah. and the games. Nice. Yeah. So um, I get a box in the mail every month with stuff in it. You know, so it's it's like collectibles and t-shirts and stuff. So I'm actually wearing a shirt that I got from it too. Is it sometimes drugs? No, it's a D&D shirt. So maybe I'll shout out about D&D as well. But I want to uh, see the shirt. Can I see the shirt? Yeah, but I got to pull the my hoodie skin. Just the hoodie check. So, so, so I do I have the I have the video on. I'll show you afterward, but <laughs> Anyway, so it's, it's got like little figures that are in anyway. Nice. Um, but, but yeah, so uh, I, I really enjoy it. My kids love opening them with me. So socks and t-shirts. I've got a whole bunch of figurines behind me. Just all kinds of stuff that I can put up in my office. Posters. Anyway, it's terrific stuff. So I'm going to pick that if you're, you know, comic books or uh, sci-fi or things like that. Uh, terrific stuff. And then um, I had another pick and I can't remember what it was. So I will punt. I will do the, that pick in a couple of weeks. It was going to be that guy, Chris Ferdinandi's newsletter, right, Chuck? I've heard about that, <laughs> but I won't get AJ started. Wait, um, you have a newsletter, Chris? <laughs> Tell me I more. I pay them on the side to, to promote this thing. <clears throat> I'm, I'm intrigued by your ideas, and I wish to subscribe to your newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> Where do they get your newsletter, Chris, since you brought it up? Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, GoMakeThings.com uh, every weekday. Awesome JavaScript tips sent right to your inbox. All right. Chris DeMars, do you have some picks for? Uh, let's see. Let's see. Uh, shout out to Dixon Flannel Company. They make some really, really dope flannels. I just bought a bunch of stuff from the other day, all green because green is my favorite color. Yeah, so shout out to Dixon Flannel. And also, there is a website, and it's not showing up for me right now, uh, but it's a hair products website. It's called aki.com. It's A Q U I S.com. It has an accessibility simulator on it. And I, I saw this when I was working at HQ. We were going through accessible websites. And it's really cool to see companies doing stuff like this where they put an accessibility simulator in their experience. So depending on if you have like certain color vision deficiencies, color blindness, you can choose uh, what looks best for you. You can change the font, the typeface, so you can, it's more easily readable. Uh, it's really, really cool. It's not showing up for me right now. Uh, but if you go there, you might be able to... to toggle that accessibility simulator and choose some options to check stuff out. So, and um, can I do like a little plug here too? If I'm doing a plug, um, I'm going to be giving a accessibility workshop in Atlanta at Refactor. So I think tickets are still on sale for that. That's in June. So come on out. We'll have a good time. Awesome. All right. Well, Chris, if people want to find you on the internet, where do they go? If you want to find me, um, I'm on Twitter, Salt and Burnham. So if you are a Supernatural fan, you'll understand the Salt and Burnham reference. Uh, ChrisDemars.com. There's a link to uh, a medium where I blog about the web. And yeah, so follow me. Hit me up. Say hi. Holler at your boy. Awesome. <laughs> All right, folks. We'll uh, wrap this one up and we will be back next week. Bye. Cheers. Peace. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.